Good morning, everyone. I um, am so glad to be with y'all again today. I, um, as a student, I honestly just truly cannot believe that we are halfway through October. Um, like Kara said, like things are just kind of sneaking up on me and we're at midterms and this is crazy. Um, but I also cannot believe that we are at the concluding chapters of Exodus. Um, this study has been such an encouragement and a gift to me. Each week, getting to revisit our family story, being reminded that in Christ it is my story as well and it's your story as well. Um, I've seen God as an intentional storyteller, a powerful rescuer, a merciful provider, and I hope you're able to say some of those same things. Um, for weeks, we have been studying a story that is full of drama. Um, it's been big on displays of God's power and provision. It has been epic in the truest sense of the word. Um, but from a narrative perspective, this week presents us with something quite different. Um, we are doing a little bit of a shift from the excitement that we have come to expect. Um, so before we dive into that, I just wanna kind of cite my sources and also make a correction on the handout. If you flip to the back, I'm pretty sure that I gave credit for that um, chart to someone named Paul Alexander, who is a student that I worked with last year, not Desmond Alexander, who actually is the one who made that chart. And he's got a book um, from Paradise to Promised Land that I am getting a lot of this information from. He's really great, um, has made the Pentateuch really accessible to me. Um, another person is Les Newsom, who I think um, Susan has made references to before. He's a pastor in Mississippi. Um, absolutely love him, knew him through RUF. Um, and have gained a lot of insight from him. John Trapp, who is RAF campus minister at the University of Texas, also I'm gonna steal some insight from him, and then a man named Jay Sklar, who was um, my seminary professor at Covenant. Um, so let's get going. Um, excited to dive into this with y'all. Um, when I was in high school, one of my favorite TV shows was the HBO miniseries, John Adams. And I know what you're all thinking, what? <laughs> what high schooler's favorite show is John Adams? Nerd alert, I understand. Um, but I think that what we're coming to in um, the Exodus today is something that kind of feels similar to the story trajectory of what is portrayed in this miniseries. So the first three episodes of John Adams cover the trial after the Boston Massacre, the Continental Congress, the Revolutionary War. They are exciting, they're compelling. We love revolution, we love the story of our American Revolution. But then the war ends and the actual governing starts. And I'm not gonna lie, the story kind of loses some of its intrigue and appeal. Adams gets really sick. He really is not good at being president and things are just not quite as thrilling. The day-to-day -day mundane aspects of governing and life are just not quite as exciting as battles and strategy and victory. And I think it's really easy for us to see the closing chapters of Exodus this way. We're going from plagues and Passover, parting of the Red Sea, lots of P words, um, provision of manna, quail falling from heaven, God's presence coming from Mount Sinai, Moses ascending Mount Sinai and receiving the Ten Commandments. And here we come to a blueprint and a very, very thorough instructions for the building of the tabernacle. And these chapters are thick with detail and pretty thin on plot. And in case you miss out on the detail of all the measurements and the colors and the materials that God instructs the Israelites to use for the tabernacle, thoroughly laid out in Exodus 25 through 31, don't worry because it pretty much all gets repeated for you again in Exodus 35 through 40 when God's instructions are fulfilled. It's almost word for word. <laughs> so Les Newsom, who I was talking about earlier, he refers to this section lovingly as the place where you've stopped or the wall of mindless tedium where the best laid um, reading the Bible in a year programs have come to die. Whoops. <laughs> so <laughs> I hope that is a relatable statement to you because it was very relatable to me. Um, all that being said, I recognize that this section is a shift 
and it's tedious, but my goal this morning is to, to encourage all of us, including myself, to see this section with new eyes through the lens of covenant relationship, to see it as beautiful because in the construction details as much about God's covenant faithfulness and love, his desire to relate to us personally and permanently is being communicated as has been communicated in the narrative that we've read thus far. The genre has changed, but the message has not. So I've got a friend who works in the catering business in Nashville, and not only does our company do like weddings and big private events, but they also have contracts with a lot of concert venues in Nashville. And we were talking about her work once and she introduced me to the concept of a rider. And you might already kind of know what this is, but just in case I'll explain. So when a band or a comedian or a speaker signs a contract to perform somewhere, part of their contract lists a list of items and conditions that the venue needs to fulfill in order for the celebrity to say, feel at home at the venue and be willing to come and perform. And if you're ever looking to kill some time on the internet, this makes for a fascinating deep dive. <laughs> it's very, very interesting. Um, as you can imagine, celebrities have a lot of odd requests. And I totally understand the value of having some consistency in what I expect uh, and what to expect for each leg of a tour in which they're traveling right across the country, across the world. Um, but you also read these requests and you can't help but recognize that celebrities are aware that they have the power in this relationship and that people are willing to meet their conditions no matter how absurd they are in order for their presence. Um, and who knows how accurate any of these reports are, but I thought I'd share some of my favorites with y'all because they're just really funny. So Van Halen goes on tour in 1982 and requests M&Ms in um, the, their rooms, but all the brown ones have to be removed. And not because they really have anything obviously like wrong with brown M&Ms or against brown M&Ms, but because they knew that if this visibly obvious part of their rider was fulfilled, then maybe the less visible request would have been noted as well. Madonna, Beyonce, and Mary J. Blige all request brand new toilet seats to be installed at each venue before their arrival, because why not? <laughs> um, Adele wants a lot of beer in her dressing room, but none of it can come from North America. Um, okay, and this one's actually pretty cute. Coldplay requests that the venue bring um, postcards from whatever town or city that they're in so that they can send it to their kids from each tour stop. I thought that one was really sweet. Um, Michael Buble requests a puck from a local hockey team wherever he stops. And your guess is as good as mine for what he does with all of those hockey pucks, I'm not sure. Um, and lastly, Cher, of course, requests an entire room just for her wigs for storage of those. Um, so in all of their ridiculousness, these requests do a lot to reveal a celebrity's particularities, priorities, and their perceived importance. But at the end of the day, writers are nothing more than stipulations of a performative contract in which both sides are trying to get the most benefit out of the other. It is transactional. Ultimately, right, the celebrity needs the venue as a platform, and the venue needs the celebrity as an attraction, so they work together. And I think when we get to the closing chapters of Exodus, it can be tempting for us to read these chapters like the fine print of a performative contract, in which God lays out his celebrity writer, so to speak. But God is laying out detailed instructions, not part of a mere performative contract, but as part of his covenant with his people. And a reminder of what a covenant is, um, as I defined it a couple weeks ago, it's a commitment that's more personal than a contract, uh, but more permanent than a relationship. And this is how God longs to relate to us, personally and permanently. And so the particularities of Exodus 25 through 40 are not for the sake of transaction, but for the sake of relationship. Thematically, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, commentators and scholars write that Exodus is about coming to a personal knowledge of God. And the tabernacle instructions and fulfillments are still doing just that. Like I said earlier, in the construction details as much about God's covenant faithfulness and love 
and his desire to relate to us personally and permanently is being communicated as has been communicated in the narrative we've read thus far. The genre has changed, but the message has not. The tabernacle is both a practical structure and with the Israelites in a particular time and place, experience God through sacrifice and ritual. And for us now, it is a metaphor and a sign in which God draws a connection between the creation and the consummation of his kingdom, communicating first and foremost God's holiness and presence. The tabernacle is the visual architecture for God's plan for redemption. Les Newsom describes these chapters about the tabernacle as the source of endless insight in which you can stitch together the whole Bible, um, which on the one hand is beautiful and it really fits with everything that we've learned this semester about God being a storyteller, but from a teaching perspective, it's a little intimidating. So let's uh, try to stitch together the whole Bible now. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> so hopefully as we walk through the tabernacle, we will see how God is present and communicating in the details. In the tabernacle, the what and the why are both symbolically and physically connected. The tabernacle functions as a royal tent, making a way for the divine king to be present with his people wherever they go. It functions as a holy tent in which we see that atonement for sin and uncleanliness is required to approach God. And it functions as a meeting tent in which divinity and humanity commune together. As Nancy wrote in this week's chapter, when you love someone, you want to live together in commitment to each other. And God has never been content to live with this separation from those he loves. With the tabernacle, he is making a way to dwell with his people. And each piece of acacia wood, each ounce of gold, is making a way for that to become a reality, both personally and permanently. So let's look at the openings of chapter 25. Um, verses 1 through 9 reads, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue purple, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, goat's hairs, tanned ramskins, goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, and the ephads for the, and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So two things kind of stand out to me in this opening. First, the list of the items required. If you remember back in Exodus 12, 35 through 36, during the Exodus, the Israelites are instructed to ask the Egyptians for gold and silver and clothing, and the Lord makes the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. So the Israelites are able to plunder the Egyptians. And then here you fast forward to Exodus 25, and we see these articles of clothing, gold and silver are being collected for the building of the tabernacle. From the onset, the tabernacle participates in the retelling of the Exodus story. It's made possible by the Egyptians, and its construction communicates the Lord's victory over Egypt. Looking at the tabernacle, um, both its intention and its material reminds us of the Exodus. And then second, the Lord's instructions are not forceful or demanding, but are dependent on the contributions of those whose hearts are moved to do so. Israel is invited to participate in the building of the tabernacle. This sets a pattern that generosity is our means of participating in God's kingdom. Experiencing generosity and self-sacrifice is an essential part of the ongoing relationship with God and continues to be an essential part of our relationship when we think about passages like 2 Corinthians 9, 7, which reads, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It is because of God's grace that Israel has the Egyptians' old silver, gold, etc., and clothing, and they are invited to recognize and give accordingly. 
So Exodus 25 continues with God's explanation of each item that needs to be built um, for the tabernacle. And this is where that diagram on the back of your handout is really helpful. But then I also recognize that writing is all on the front. So should have laid that out a little bit. Oh, I'm not sure extras are. Um, so um, we're getting into the really thorough weeds, right, of the dimensions, the materials, the use for each of these furniture items. Um, and already we see, based on the materials being gathered, that this is no ordinary residence. But the materials communicate that here dwells a king. Gold, silver, and bronze, purple, um, blue, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen. It is a royal tent, a royal residence that is distinct from other Israelite dwellings. The following instructions are for the furniture items inside the tent. And first up is a rectangular wooden chest or box um, that's covered with gold both inside and out. This is the Ark, um, what we refer to as the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and it's detailed for us in Exodus 25, 10 through 14, and then 17 through 20. The box is constructed strategically with golden rings and poles on the sides for its transportation. Inside the box, Moses is to later place the stone tablets with the testimony of the Lord, the Ten Commandments, and the law. And the lid is to go on. The lid to go on top is to be made of pure gold, and this is to serve as a mercy seat or an atonement cover. And we are talking about a lot of gold that is going to be used to construct this thing. Um, and this is a very silly aside, but it's a visual image that's kind of always helped me understand the weightiness and the value of gold. And I'm pretty sure last time I told y'all that I see the lens, uh, see the world through a 30 rock lens. So you're probably wondering when I was going to make a reference to it. Um, so here it is. I promise I'll limit myself just to one. But <laughs> there's an episode where one of the NBC pages has done something exciting. And to thank him, they want to make one of his dreams come true. And his dream is to have a game show on NBC called Gold Case. <laughs> and the premise of this show is kind of like deal or no deal. But the idea is that contestants have to guess which briefcase is filled with millions of dollars worth of solid gold um, among a group of Vanna White types, right, that are standing up there all holding matching briefcases. And everyone is convinced, like, this is it. This is the next big thing for NBC. This is going to be a great success. And they're all standing there in the studio watching the filming. And then the pilot episode kind of begins, and we get this montage of contestant after contestant correctly um, guessing the briefcase right off the bat. And it's because they're scanning the audio, the like Vanna White types, right, holding the briefcase, and there's one of them that's like physically shaking <laughs> because of the weight of solid gold, right? <laughs> um, they very quickly realize that solid gold weighs a lot and is not something that you can just stand there and hold. <laughs> um, so, needless to say, the show flops, they shut it down, um, and that is the scene that plays in my head anytime I'm reminded of gold's weight and value. So, <laughs> welcome to my insights, but um, it really, I think, presents a really helpful, a helpful image. Um, and in this context, I can't help but think that even with the poles and the rings and all that gold, um, the Ark of the Covenant would have been no small feat to carry, right? The idea is that the tabernacle is supposed to be something that can be transported around. Um, but wow, the Levites must have been really strong. I don't know how they did it. Um, but I think this physical weightiness um, communicates something to us, right, about God's presence. Um, there's so much about God's power and glory um, that's being communicated just when we think about the sheer weight of gold um, and also its value. So anyway, back to the Ark. Um, in Leviticus 16, the annual ritual in which the high priest sprinkles blood on the Ark's lid to make atonement for the sins of the Israelites is explained in detail, and I know we'll get there in a couple of weeks. Um, but on top of this lid also sits two cherubim that are made of gold and they're facing each other with outstretched wings. And this is the Lord's throne. It's the place where he is to be present. And God states that here um, is where he will meet you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. 
Um, and I think the ark gets described first, right, right off the bat in chapter 25, because it's the most important part of the tabernacle. It is God's presence on his royal throne. The mercy seat and the sprinkled blood communicate an essential truth about our relationship with God, that atonement is required. When God came down to dwell with his people, he would not first of all see the law that they had broken that's within the ark, but he would see the saving blood of the atoning sacrifice sprinkled on the mercy seat. And you can see from the diagram that is on your outline um, that the ark dwells by itself behind a curtain. The curtain is decorated with figures of cherubim. This area is called the holiest of holies, or the most holy place. This area of the tabernacle communicates that yes, the presence of God is returning, but sin has complicated things a little bit. In the presence of sin, the original orderliness of creation is not how God relates to us. Life is a little bit more opaque. Both with the construction of the ark and the curtain that seals it off from the rest of the tabernacle, God is communicating how careful the Israelites must be if they are going to approach him again. But we already see atonement at the heart of God's relationship with his people. Just with this first piece of furniture, we see how God is systematically engineering a perfect salvation for his people. Les Newsom remarks that the tedious details are their own encouragement in a way, because it reveals to us that we can approach our redemption with assurance. It has been thought through and communicated in a myriad of ways from before the foundation of the world. God always makes a way to be with his people. So next we are instructed about the construction of the table for the bread of presence. And this is in Exodus 25, 23 through 29. And the table is to go in the same space as the ark, but not on the same side as the curtain. So it's gonna dwell in what is called the holy place, not the most holy of places. Um, and the measurements identify that it's really no bigger than just your average coffee table, but on it lies golden plates and cups and dishes that would not be on your average coffee table, um, plus loaves of bread that are consumed and replaced by priests weekly. And these loaves are understood in a few different ways. Nancy um, Guthrie in her, in this chapter, she highlights that they again signify that God meets the needs of his people, that he is aware of our daily needs similar to what is being communicated, say, by the manna that um, is provided in Exodus 16. But another commentator connects the bread on the table to a sign of God's presence. The furniture in the holy place indicates that someone is home because there's food on the table, and as we will see next, the lamps are lit. Um, God is there both day and night. So the next piece of furnishings is the lampstand described in Exodus 25, 31 through 39. It is to hold seven lamps and to be in the shape of a tree. The lampstand is rich with symbolism. And I say, as I say this, I think it's just culturally important to note that symbolism is ever present in Jewish thinking and Jewish worship and teaching. It's deeply embedded in how they saw the world. So it makes sense that God communicates to them in this way. He's building off of their cultural norms to articulate his purposes and his care. So thinking of the lampstand, we see God as a source of light in a dark world, right? That's one of the symbols, or that's some of the symbolism. But we're also, I think, reminded of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden that's described in Genesis 3.22. Um, and that is a symbol of God's life-giving power. And so also residing in this holy place is the altar of incest. In, oops, sorry, gosh, incense described for us in Exodus 31 through 5. And again, it's made of acacia wood and plated with pure gold. Here the priests burn fragrance twice daily in the morning and in the evening, approaching God's throne on behalf of the people seeking grace. And from the most holy place in the holy place, we see that God is keen to communicate his power and his presence. The royal tent full of gold and fit for a king to dwell, but also a holy tent in which atonement is required for relationship and great care is taken to protect the presence of God. God's presence is further protected by the courtyard, um, which is constructed around the holy place. 
and it's roughly 165 feet by 82 feet. Uh, I honestly, I, should, I meant to come up with something to reference it to, but I really don't know. But that's a pretty big space, right? <laughs> um, and the curtain for, for the fence is about eight feet high. Um, and that is all described in Exodus 27, 9 through 19. Um, the entrance is on the eastern side, marking it off from the rest of the Israelites' encampment. And the material used, we've shifted from gold, and now we're focused more on silver and bronze. And it signifies that though the courtyard is still important and was limited to use by, uh, to use by the priests, it's not quite like the holy place in function and service. Desmond Alexander uses the phrase buffer zone to describe the courtyard because it allows the Israelites to dwell in safety close to the presence of the Lord. He makes the case that just as Moses sent a boundary around Mount Sinai to prevent the people from coming into the divine presence in Exodus 19, so the courtyard fence prevents them from approaching God inadvertently. And so it's these pieces that are in the courtyard that enable a sinful people to meet with a holy God. The first is a bronze altar described in um, Exodus 27, 1 through 8. The altar would have taken up about half the width of the tabernacle, and it would have likely stood between the entrance to the courtyard and the tent of meeting. And I think this is um, a really cool physical reminder that access to God's presence only comes through atonement, right? You can't get into the rest of the tabernacle without um, engaging something at the altar first. And then also in the courtyard is a bronze basin that's described in Exodus 30, 18 through 21. And here priests are to wash their hands and their feet when serving within the tabernacle in the courtyard. Again, the message of God's holiness is communicated in the acts and status required to be in his presence. That is something we will continue to unpack over the next couple weeks. And so we get to Exodus 40, the end of this section. Um, and in Exodus 40, 33, we read that Moses has finished the work. Each curtain, each gold or bronze layer, each piece of furniture is built to its specification and it's set up. Um, and we've seen the Israelites flounder a lot. And so I think it's something to celebrate, right, that they're able to receive these specific instructions from God and complete it um, within the requirements. I think we just kind of take a moment and appreciate that for a little bit. <laughs> the Israelites aren't totally worthless. <laughs> um, and it doesn't take long for the glory of the Lord to fill the tent. And the text goes on to read, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever a um, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on their tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, and the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. So the Lord's royal residence has been established, and he uses it as a kind of communication of, hey, it's time to go, like I'm going to move my cloud, um, or it's time to stay and settle here. Um, and this tabernacle becomes the epicenter for God's glory. And we know that God's glory is with the intent of filling the ends of the earth, right? God's glory is never um, staying just in one place, in one place, but it always has a mission in mind. And from the beginning of God's covenant promise, it was made clear that the, the descendants of Abraham would be a blessing to all the families on the earth. So, here, um, so he is here in this tabernacle dwelling with a particular people, but he still has you and me in mind. God's presence, um, his dwelling among the Israelites, is intended to extend in and through his people to fill the entire world. Psalm 78, 69 reads, He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he found, has founded forever. And we see this in the tabernacle, right? A royal tent, a holy tent, a meeting tent, in which Jay Scalar comments that God is saying, Here is a picture of heaven on earth. I am having you make a home for me here that is like my heavenly one a home in which I, the king in heaven, can come and dwell in your midst. 
God has always been a God of presence. His ministry and work on our behalf is a work of presence. And this does not start in the tabernacle, but God's desire to dwell among us is an innate characteristic and an unchangeable expression of his love. In creation, God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 3, 8 tells us. And the imagery of the tabernacle makes it clear that the Garden of Eden was on God's mind in the plans for the tabernacle. The pictures on the wall and the curtains, the details are reminiscent. The tree-shaped lampstand, the cherubim that we are told um, block Adam and Eve's access to the garden in Genesis 3:24 after the fall, are now symbolized on the curtain that protects the most holy place. The Israelites would have read the tabernacle instructions and said, hmm, this feels like Genesis. The tabernacle is a portable Garden of Eden, but it does not just reminisce. It also communicates the way that moving forward, God will seek to dwell with his people. In the same way, we see God's personal and permanent covenant promise expand from an individual, Abraham, to a family, right? Jacob, the son, the 12 tribes of Israel, to a nation, the Israelites, um, to all people through the inheritance that is ours in Christ. We now see the presence of God become more and more personal and permanent over the course of our family history. It starts in a garden, it moves to a tent, then it becomes a temple, then it becomes the son of God and man, then it becomes the church, and it'll finally rest um, in the city. And we've already covered God's ministry of presence in the garden and in the tabernacle, but what about the others? What, um, how does what started in the garden end with a city on a hill? Well, after the tabernacle, right, we get the temple, which is laid out for us in 1 Kings 5. Um, and this is where King Solomon begins working uh, to gather labor and supplies after God has granted him permission to build a more permanent dwelling for himself. Um, and the setup of the holy place and the most holy place um, and a lot of the, simil- uh, the materials are reminiscent of the tabernacle. And in 1 Kings 8, 41 through 43, it's revealed to us that God's glory and dwelling among his people is for the sake of worship, extending throughout the entire earth. The temple becomes a place where non-Israelites come to pray and are convinced of Yahweh's presence and reality. It becomes the center of life for the nation of Israel and the center of God's mission. And then in John 1, 14, um, it uses the word dwelt to describe Christ's presence with us. Um, The ESV translation reads, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the word would be better translated actually as tabernacled among us. Jesus becomes the ultimate manifestation of the presence of God, royal, holy, longing to be with us, tabernacled among us. In his incarnation, we see his glory. He is the center from which the glory of God is to fill all the earth. And he's thus later described as the temple um, in John 2, 18 through 21. And then Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 describes us as the church in this way. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church itself becomes the ultimate temple, with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. It will be the dwelling of um, it will be a dwelling of God in the Spirit, and as the church fills the earth, then the kingdom of God spreads. First Corinthians three sixteen repeats this when it says, "Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you?" It's been a while since I've done math principles, but I'm pretty sure that this is the transitive property, mm-hmm. and that's what's applying here, right? If we are in Christ, and the presence of God is in Christ, then the presence of God is in us by virtue of being in Christ. <laughs> Kind of complicated, but hopefully you can follow. 
Um, and you in the New Testament is almost always plural, right? It really should be translated as y'all for us Texans. Um, and that means that the whole church is functioning as a tabernacle, the place where God's glory dwells. And then finally, we look at Revelation 21 and 22, the final temple city um, in which all the nations will be gathered for the worship of the Father and the Lamb. Revelation 21, 3 states, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. God is going to be with us personally and permanently. The, ultimately, the ultimate ministry of presence becomes reality in the new heavens and the new earth. Praise be to God for that. I remember a visiting preacher who came um, all the way from Scotland to my church growing up saying that God is closer than the next breath you take. And both his accent and the power of this image have always stuck with me. God is closer than the next breath you take. Through the Holy Spirit and the atoning work of Christ, God has tabernacled within and among us. He is closer than the next breath we take. And in this, his closeness, we see that God communicates his power and his presence to us, even in the most tedious of details. It's not just the powerful displays of rescue that teach us who God is, but it is the mundane details that are also subject to his rule and reign. And I think that's really encouraging as our lives honestly look a lot more like the mundane details of Exodus 30, or 25 through 40 than it does of the radical rescue that we've seen earlier in the book. And so as we head into a look at the priesthood next week, then Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, where we will continue to encounter texts that are light on plot but heavy on detail, I think it's so important that we've done this groundwork to understand the tabernacle. We see how God and his purposes are present in the details. And I don't think that a faithful witness is dependent on having the dimensions of each detail of the tabernacle memorized. Good grief, that would be a lot. Um, but I do think that we are called to see the purposefulness in God's thoroughness and the way that symbolism and metaphor is essential to God's communication with us. In the details, God is communicating how careful we must be if we're going to approach him. God's presence has returned to dwell among his people through the Spirit, but it also still in the process of returning to dwell in the way that Revelation 21.3 proclaims it will be. Knowing the purposefulness of the communication in the tabernacle, I think helps set the stage for us to see the same purposefulness and the thoroughness of the law that's going to be laid out for us in Leviticus, and the specificness of the counts and the account, um, the counts and the accounts of the wilderness that are written in Numbers, and in the repetitive call to remember in Deuteronomy. I cannot guarantee that my eyes will never glaze over again reading the detail and the depth of these chapters, but I'm truly looking forward to continuing our study of God's personal and permanent power and presence as told through the rest of the Pentateuch. Thanks be to God for his ministry of presence that is communicated to us in all of life's details. So I'll close us in prayer. <laughs> Thank you. I'll close us in prayer really fast, and then y'all can get together for small groups. Um, Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God of great rescue, but you are also a God of small details, um, and that both communicate who you are to us, and that both um, both connect us to you um, throughout the history of, of your people. And we, um, we praise you for this, and we pray that we um, would be mindful of it um, in life's mundane moments and in life's big moments. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.